Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 23 this morning. Uh, Throughout the last year and a half, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts in an effort to unpack the starting of the church. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unpack the Gospels. They unpack the good news of Jesus' birth and his life and, of course, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The book of Acts was written by Dr. Luke, and it is the account of the church on the heels of the resurrection and, of course, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it moves into a time and a period where the Holy Spirit now has come upon the church. We've made our way through the early parts of the church where uh, the church started. And that's the first, oh, six, seven, eight books of our chapters of the book of Acts. We see the church started and we see when the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and the early church that when they preached that scores and scores and thousands of people would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful depiction because for the first few chapters, Dr. Luke does a very good job of giving us exact Uh, records of how many people are um, added to the church. And after a few chapters, it's almost like he's given up because there's so many people coming to Jesus, it's hard to keep track of. So at first it's 3,000 and 5,000, another 2,000 and more thousands here. And then he just starts saying, there's a lot of them, folks. There's a lot of people coming to Jesus. That's the first portion of the book of Acts. And that middle portion is the church scattering. And what we see here is the persecution coming upon the church. Now, the persecution was coming from a variety of places. It was coming from the Gentiles who are the outsiders. Whenever you're in the New Testament and you see the word Gentiles, you can think of them as the outsiders in terms of who is a part of the family of God. Gentiles were traditionally those that were not Jewish, those that did not grow up in the Jewish faith, and so therefore they were outsiders. And Gentiles were upset with the church being formed because the church upset the status quo. It changed everything, and so all of the traditions and practices that were normally associated with wherever they were living were now flipped on top of themselves, and it was completely changed. Now Gentiles, they were losing part of their people to the church, and so they were very upset. But persecution also came from the Jewish people, the Jewish people who had, uh, who had a long history of traditions in honoring Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the law, and all of the traditions and the festivals that came along with the law. They were very upset because, again, the status quo was completely changed. We see the church scattering then, and so as it scattered every single time, in fact, in the book of Acts where there was persecution, a few verses later it would say something like this, and the word of God multiplied because the followers of Jesus would scatter to the surrounding areas. The last portion of the book of Acts is this portion called the church sends, and what we see is the missionary journey start to take force, and this is take place, and this is where we're at in the final conclusion of the book of Acts. We're in the last four or five chapters of the book of Acts. We're identifying the apostle Paul and the last portion of his record in the book of Acts. We have seen uh, 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 Paul spend two years in Ephesus, has a strong desire to go back to Jerusalem, and as soon as he returns back to Jerusalem, he's arrested, he's bound, he's beaten, 
And now he's going to be put on trial very shortly. We begin versing, uh, versing, we begin reading in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23. Now, just a heads up, we're going to read some 50 verses today. That's a lot for a Sunday morning. But we're in church, so we thought, why not? Let's read the Bible today, right? So stay with me. We're going to read some 50-odd verses because it's really important to get the narrative of what's happening, and then we're going to walk away with two big ideas based on today's scripture. So verse 12, it says this, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had what? So in the days of Paul and Jesus, there was a secretive group of assassins that were Jewish who targeted the Romans and their uh, supporters. Now, these assassins have now targeted Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. That is an extreme diet. Verse 15, now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And, when, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. You see why Luke used the word conspiracy in verse 13? So what they're asking is bring him down as if you're going to determine his case. And as you do, we will be ready to assassinate him, to kill him. We read on in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he, Paul's nephew, went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell them. Verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So do you get a clear picture of what's happening so far? The assassins wanted the chief priests and elders to lie to the Roman commander, pretending that they wanted another meeting with Paul, all the while they were trying to execute this assassination plot. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride horses, uh, mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Everyone say Felix. He's an important part of today's conversation, so we want to remember him. They are now, uh, how many, how many uh, soldiers did they now get together? 200. Uh, how many spearmen? Another 200. And how many horsemen? Yeah, we got 470 soldiers together escorting Paul out of Jerusalem. They're taking no chances, right? 
There's an assassination plot. They hear about it. And now they're countering with 470 trained soldiers escorting Paul out of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 25. Well, I mean, I think I skipped a verse. Hold on. Yep, verse 25, right in the middle of that screen. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by, then, by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Remember, they had beat him. They had arrested him. He was a Roman citizen. And that was something you didn't do to a Roman citizen. It was highly irregular. It was totally against Roman culture and Roman laws. And so he's retelling the situation that led to this moment. Verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I wanted to know what he was being charged with. Verse 29, I found out that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So again, they're recounting the events, and now they have uh, escaped through the night. They have brought Paul to Felix, uh, Antipatris, the city or the country that was uh, uh, referred to was dangerous and inhabited. And after that, it was open and flat, which meant after they got to Antipatris, the land was kind of hard to do an ambush. There was no hills, there was no caverns, there was no mountain region for there to be an easy way to attack Paul. So once they got to that clearing, the land was open and flat. And so it was easy for them to spot an enemy. Does that make sense? This is why they went that far, and then they decided they would uh, be fine from there. Verse 34, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and he, when he learned he was from Cilicia, uh, Cilicia, user's choice today, Cilicia. Verse 35, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So learning that he was from Cilicia meant that Felix would be responsible to hear and to rule on the case. So this is now Felix's responsibility to hear the case against Paul and to make ruling and judgment. It's very important. Take that information. Remember it. We're going to come back to that. Now, this would be Paul's first opportunity to speak to someone at this level of authority being a governor. I want you to go back to think about Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is the account where um, our main character in this reading, Paul, is still referred to his old name, which is what? Saul at this time is a figure in the early church, but he's not a figure that's on the side of the early church. He is the antagonist, as you would if you would. He is the one that's breathing threatenings against the church. He is the one that is uh, passionate about the Jewish law. He's the one that was uh, consenting to Stephen's death, right? The first martyr recorded in the church. When Paul, uh, when Saul becomes Paul, when Saul ends up seeing the light both physically 
and figuratively, when he comes to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is, there's this, inter- there's this exchange between Jesus and Saul where, well, where Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Right? Why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you being so obstinate? Why are you doing this? In that exchange, Saul sees Jesus for who he is. And there's this promise that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. I'm going to read it for you, but you might want to make a note of it. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 says this. The Lord said, let me back up. He's talking to Ananias. Ananias is going to be the servant that helps uh, Saul get to where he needs to go. He's going to disciple uh, Saul. He's going to help him in his early steps of his faith. I'm going to back up to verse 13. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias is saying, just in case you didn't know everything, Jesus... I'm giving you a better scope of what's happening here. You ever feel like you need to fill in Jesus on something? Right? This is what Ananias is doing. And so the Lord responds this way, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts chapter 9, while he's in the midst of his transformation, his salvation experience, Jesus embeds a promise by way of Ananias saying, this man, Paul, is a chosen instrument. He's going to preach to Gentiles. He's going to preach to Jews, but he's also going to preach to kings. And now here in Acts 23, 20 years later, we see that this would be the first opportunity for the fulfillment of this promise to come true. 20 years later. It brings us to our first big idea for this morning, and that is this. It's important that we don't project a timeline on the promises of God. It's important that we don't project a timeline on the promises of God. Now, here's the thing. There are some promises in Scripture that are absolutely immediate. Uh, In the New Testament, um, it says this, um, uh, in the New Testament, in John chapter 3, let's go with the most famous verse in the Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. That promise is instantaneous. As soon as you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved, right? Uh, there's verses in Romans chapter uh, 6 in verse 23. It says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those, those promises are instant. They are, the timeline is so quick. Why? Because the timeline is embedded into the promise. Let me give you a couple of promises that are not so easy to determine their timeline. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When exactly will he not depart from it? Like, is he older than he is now? When he's old like I'm old? Or when he's just older? You parents there with, uh, with children who are grown, and uh, you pray for them every single day, and you look at this kind of promise, and it can be a little disheartening. Train up a child in the way he should go. And you, by God's grace, you, you did everything you could to train up that child in the way they should go. And you're claiming this promise. Well, it becomes really important not to project a timeline 
on that promise, right? How about the verse that goes, give and it shall be given unto you? And some of you are saying, I've been given, but no one's been given back. (laughs) Right? So these promises that are in Scripture, some of them, the, the, the timeline is embedded in the very promise. But oftentimes we live by these principles that are in Scripture, never to know the exact timeline that God would like to instill, uh, institute those promises. Here's Paul in Acts chapter 9. And no doubt Ananias takes him by the hand. He's blind, takes him to a room, takes care of him. And, and, and no doubt there's an exchange between Paul and Ananias somewhere where Paul says, so who are you? How did, why are you here? Well, Jesus told me I had to. I didn't want to do this. But Jesus said I had to. In fact, he, he talked about you quite a bit. And Paul's like, really? What did he say? Well, he said, you're a chosen instrument that one day you're going to preach to uh, the Gentiles, which makes sense because we don't like you. Uh, You're going to preach to the Jews, which I don't understand how that's going to work. Like, I don't think you're going to get great offerings in that message. But anyway, you're going to preach to the Jews. And then he said, weird, he said, you're going to preach to kings. Um, We've tracked Paul's life so far. The reception for Paul's messages have not been great. In fact, every time he goes to a city, what ends up happening? He gets kicked out. It's not a great track record for a church planner. So he goes to, every single time he goes to a city, he ends up getting persecuted. He ends up getting um, kicked out. Um, At first, in his very early experience, the Jews don't want him to preach the gospel because they don't trust him. Because he's made most of his career as, a, as an adult persecuting the church. And no doubt there must have been some lonely moments for Paul. Walking out of cities, being cast out out of cities. Trying to repair or trying to heal the bandages and the wounds that are on his body from the beatings. And no doubt the words of God have come back on his life. Almost like uh, they were teasing him. You're going to preach to kings one day. You're going to preach to Jews, Gentiles, and to kings. And Paul's like, man, I would just like to be in one place for a few months, let alone have the opportunity to preach to kings. By the way, aren't you, aren't you glad God doesn't tell you exactly how his promises will be fulfilled? Because if you would understand the details and the minutia of the pain and the brokenness that we would have to endure for something to come alive in our life... I'm not so sure how many of us would sign up for it. Do you think Paul would sign up for the beatings, for the persecution, for the uh, being shipwrecked, for all of these things we're about to see in his life, for the opportunity to preach to kings? In Acts chapter 9, we don't know. You think about it in your life, when, when, God, when God gives you a, uh, an inkling of a promise, it becomes really important for us not to project a timeline because we don't know exactly how things are going to happen. And if you do project a timeline on God, what will happen is this, two things. It will lead to disappointment and it will lead to a, dis, uh, a fractured faith. It will lead to a faith where you're constantly second-guessing God because his promises are not happening as fast as you would like them to happen. Here's Paul 20 years later, and now he has the first opportunity to speak to someone at this level, fulfilling the promise 20 years earlier in Acts chapter 9. 
Now, what's interesting is this. For many, many years, Paul lived with great freedom, trusting the promises of God through those years. He had the freedom to go out into the land, to go out into different areas, to start churches. And now, for the rest of the book of Acts, for the next four and a half chapters, he's bound and he's imprisoned or on house arrest for the remainder of the book of Acts. And so it's quite opposite of the freedom he enjoyed earlier, but that's where we see Paul taken up. We're going to move on to Acts chapter 24 now, Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with the same elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the Jewish leadership, we're talking about the high priest, the elders. This is a different Ananias, by the way. This is Ananias, the high priest. Um, so the high priest, the elders, they bring Tertullus, who's a skilled lawyer, come in order to show how serious the Jewish leadership was about getting a conviction against Paul. We're in verse 2 now. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Let's just pause and call this what it is. Well, you know it sounds like. His nose is um, brown. He is flattering Felix in order to butter him up for the accusations he's going to make against Paul. Verse 3, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, just a quick biography on Felix. He grew up as a slave. His father, Pallas, was a friend of the emperor Claudius, and through such an influence, Felix was able to rise in status. So he was known for his cruelty and his lust. Those were the two values in his life that ended up uh, manifesting himself in the way that he ruled. Uh, Felix did not bring prosperity or peace to any place he governed. So the flattery that they're putting on him in his first opening verses, they're just basically factually untrue. They come to verse 5 and they present their case. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and, his ring, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him and we would have judged him according we would have judged him according to our law. So the charges against Paul is this. He's politically dangerous. He's a plague, and he's tried to profane the temple. Now, they're putting Paul in the same group with terrorists, which was a very high concern for Rome. This is not nothing new. This was something that was common in Rome at this time. And so by putting Paul on equal uh, footing as terrorists against the Roman Empire it would force Rome to take action. You'll understand, though, there's no specific charge so far. Verse 7, the chief captain Lysias came and greet with, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Paul's accusers regret, regret that the case has come this far. They would have loved to have settled this with mob justice. They would have loved to just settle this by taking him out when they had the opportunity. But such as it happened, it was not going to be the case. Verse 10, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 
He says this, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up now against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, what's he talking about with the way? This is Christianity. This is the way they referred to their faith, the early church. They was referred to as the way. So he says, this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and prophet in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men accept themselves, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let this man themselves say what wrongdoing they find when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul makes his defense. And basically he says, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> right? This is what he's basically saying. Here is, uh, here's the accusation. He's a plague and he profaned the temple. He's causing an insurrection. He's causing a political uprising. After all, he's part of the sect of the Nazarenes, which whenever it's brought up in Scripture, it's always a derogatory remark. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Remember that quote? They're putting him on equal uh, footing as terrorists. They're really trying really hard to get a conviction against Paul. Paul gets up and says, man, am I glad to talk to you? All of this is not true. I believe in the way. I believe in the prophets. I believe in the law. I believe in our fathers. I came after being years away. I made my trek to Jerusalem. I came to present offerings. When they came, they saw there was no tumult. There was no uprising. Nothing was going on. Except for this statement, which he ends in verse 21. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul made it clear that he had not abandoned the God of his forefathers or the law of the prophets. Instead, he acted in fulfillment of them both. Paul's belief that there was a resurrection connected his specific trust to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would have been polarizing. And he consistently called the case back to evidence, the one thing we will just not find in any of the accusations. So we read on. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Look at that phrase, verse 22, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. He knew of Christianity. He knew of the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. He knew of the claim that Jesus did not come to break the law, but to fulfill the law. And so in doing all of this, uh, in, in living his life, Felix had become very knowledgeable about the way. So he wanted to be the one to decide. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. 
The best we can equate this is he's under house arrest. He's going to be assigned to centurions. They're going to watch over him. He's not going to have all the freedoms in the world, but they're not going to prevent him from seeing some of his friends when they want to attend his needs. Felix avoids a decision under the pretense of waiting for more evidence through the Roman commander Lysias, even though Felix clearly had enough to make a decision in Paul's favor. What we see from Felix is Felix is trying to walk a middle ground. He's being uh, conscious of both sides. He's being political, if you would. He knew Paul was innocent, yet he didn't want to identify himself with Paul's gospel and the Christians. So he made no decision and he kept Paul in custody. Rather, house arrest, it looks like. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Everyone say, Drusilla. She was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So it's an interesting turn of events, right? Now he's with his wife, who's Jewish. Now he has sent for Paul. Now he's hearing him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now who's Drusilla? Quick biography of her. She's the sister of Herod Agrippa. She was known as being beautiful, ambitious, She's all about 20 years old at this point. Felix had seduced her away from her husband and made her, Drusilla, his third wife. And they had lax morals. Again, uh, Felix was driven by cruelty and by lust. So you can kind of imagine the circumstances of their marriage. Lots of abuse, lots of uh, dehumanizing behavior towards his wife. Now, having understood that, Look at what Paul decides to talk to them about. And so Paul reasoned about, one, righteousness, two, self-control, and three, coming judgment. Righteousness, that this is only between us and Jesus Christ, that the law does not provide us a way to be righteous, but the law reveals our unrighteousness, right? He talks about self-control. A dangerous topic when you're talking to them too. Um, Felix is driven by lust and every depraved behavior that would come from that lust. And so he talks about self-control. He talks about the need for Christian ethics that was evidently lacking in the life of both Felix and Drusilla. And then he talks about the judgment to come, this accountability that we have before God. Now, hearing this message, I just would wonder what exactly emotions and disposition Felix has now, right? Felix has uh, delayed making a decision. He's delayed making a conviction. He wants a little bit more time. He brings Drusilla in, says, why don't we have Paul? And he come and he can explain to us a little bit more. Paul comes, realizes he has an audience before Felix, who's known for, uh, for cruelty and lust, and with Drusilla, who's Jewish, but also is in this depraved relationship. And so he says, I know what message I'm going to preach. Number one, righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? Not from ourselves. It comes from Jesus. Talks about self-control. And he talks about the coming judgment. It's interesting because Felix's motive was to find out a way uh, to take advantage of whatever situation he's in. So look at what he does in verse 26, or his thought process. At the same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul. What was he looking for? 
He was looking for a bribe. He thought if he had a private audience with Paul, that all these churches that had been supporting Paul and in his endeavors so far would have sent money and Paul would have been in a position to buy his freedom, which was not uncommon in those days. So Paul demanded, or I should say Felix demanded this private audience so that Paul could, uh, could bribe him, but that wasn't going to happen. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Felix would not be discouraged. He kept on making appointments with him. For how long? Verse 27. So just think about what's going on in Paul's life. He's being arrested, he's being bound, and he's had the opportunity that God for, uh, Jesus foretold in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, you're going to have the opportunity to speak to kings. I don't know if Paul knew that was going to happen under the circumstances of him being imprisoned. Now here's Felix, and he's thinking, man, as soon as he gets enough money, maybe I'll get a bribe, maybe I'll have this opportunity. But for two years, uh, whenever Paul met with Felix and Drusilla, or Felix anyway, he would tell him about, here's what righteousness looks like. Here's what self-control looks like, and here's what the coming judgment of God looks like in your life. For two years, Felix already had a well-articulated explanation of the way, the faith, and now he gets one-on-one time with Paul, and Paul repeats the message like a broken record. Here's what righteousness looks like, here's what self-control looks like, and here's the coming judgment of God. It's a pretty good message for today, isn't it? Here's what the righteousness looks like. Here's what self-control looks like. Here's the coming judgment of God. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So it's an interesting set of events. Under Roman law, the type of custody Paul was in could only last two years. Felix showed that he was willing to break Roman laws to keep Paul in prison for more than two years. He refused to release him, though he knew he was innocent. And he did this for the same reason Pilate condemned Jesus while knowing he was innocent. They both were acting out of pure political advantage. They wanted to do the Jews a favor to keep the peace among the Jewish people. They knew what was right, but refused to do them purely out of the fear of man. They had an eternal fatal lack of courage. He rejected Jesus under the pretense of delaying a decision. It leads us to our second big idea as we conclude Acts chapter 24 today, and that is this. The decision to delay is the decision to reject. In fact, I would go as further to say delayed obedience is disobedience. Here's Felix, and he already understands what it means to be a Christian, what the faith looks like. He has this opportunity with Paul to hear on numerous occasions over two years in his life. And every single time, he delayed making a decision for Christ under, under circumstances where he knew what was the way. He knew what was truth. He knew the message from Jesus Christ. He knew the message from Paul about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And yet for more than two years, Felix simply delayed. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You think of 
folks who respond to the gospel in this way. They express their rejection through delay by delaying their decision to commit to Jesus Christ. But it is rejection nonetheless. Um, If you think about um, relationships and you think about how this plays out and you think about the parenting relationship with your kids and at various ages throughout your kids' life, there will be opportunities for you to give them an instruction. Clean your room, right? And if you happen upon your child, whatever age they are, and they're sitting and they're distracted by something in their room, um, and you say, you're supposed to be cleaning your room, you might get a variety of responses. One of which might be, I was cleaning my room. I'm a going to. I, I will. And for a parent, that delayed obedience is disobedience, isn't it? That would not fly well with you. That would not uh, sit well with you. You think about relationships as we get older, and that same principle holds true, uh, where the the decision to delay is the decision to reject. Um, Let's say you, you run into a friend and they say, we should get dinner. Yeah, we should. And then a few weeks go by and you see each other in Sherm's We should really get together. Yeah, we really should. And so you take the first step and you you invite them to something. And then they push that off. And then so the next time you think of it, you you invite them again and then they push that off. If that happens more than a couple of times, their delay you're going to take as a rejection. Am I right? Right? Let's talk about the spouse relationship with one another. Um, If there is a task to be done in the home and one spouse asks the other to complete it, and like the child, distracted by something else at the moment, you simply respond, I was going to do that. And pretty soon, that delay becomes this opportunity for tension to enter the relationship And all of a sudden, you take that delay as rejection. All of those are real life examples that we should uh, lay against the backdrop of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we delay to obey what Jesus is asking us to do, we are rejecting him. We are disobeying So we've been talking about sharing our story. Uh, We've been talking about what it looks like for us to make a defense for the way we live our life or for our faith. And some of you this last week, you were prompted by the Holy Spirit to say something or to interject into a conversation or to stand up for your faith or to simply share your story when you were having a moment with uh, your friend or with a family member. And our delay in that moment, and you say, Holy Spirit, I'm not ready. Well, yeah, that's why he reminded you, right? If he thought you were ready, he wouldn't give you the reminder. 
The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and it encourages us in a way. And when we choose to delay, what ends up happening is we are rejecting God in that moment. We're disobeying God in that moment. Delayed obedience is disobedience nonetheless. So whether we're speaking of salvation or another place in our life where God is speaking to us, the encouragement I believe here is not to allow the spirit of Felix to enter our life to delay obedience to God because it will lead to the same two places that we talked about earlier. It will lead to disappointment in our life and it will lead to a fractured faith. And there will be multiple times in our life where we have opportunities to simply respond to the Holy Spirit. And when we choose to delay, well, you know what happens the next time the Holy Spirit speaks to us? It's a whole lot easier to delay, Right? Let's go back to the first example in our parenting relationships. If there are no repercussions or consequences for delayed obedience with your child, what happens the next time the child has the opportunity to delay obedience? It becomes a whole lot easier, right? It becomes a whole lot easier to delay. Uh, what happens in a relationship between spouses when, uh, when there is no accountability for what you have spoken or said to one another in terms of agreeing what to do? Well, when that happens and there's no accountability, it creates a divide and it becomes easier to do that again. And in our relationship with Jesus Christ, let me implore you that when he speaks to you, you simply respond and obey. Now, here is here is the conundrum for most of us in our faith. Most of us are perfectly content not hearing from Jesus. Because it's a whole lot easier to go through life not hearing from him. So I'm convinced many of us, the reason why we don't have, the reason why we don't have active, fervent prayer lives is because there's a chance God might speak to you. And it's a whole lot easier to go through life without hearing from him. I'm convinced that the reason why going through Scripture is so hard and so difficult and the reason why many of us may, 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 may shy away from spending time looking into Scripture and digging is because, my goodness, God might actually speak to you and hold you accountable to what you're reading. And in those moments, we have to press in. We have to lean in so that we can hear from God and simply obey. Um, as parents, don't you just... Um, Wonder why children don't understand it'd just be a whole lot easier if they obey the first time? Like their life would be easier, your life would be easier, would all be easier and happy? Um, I'm asking you to consider what it looks like for you to just obey the first time when God speaks to you. It's really important for us not to project a timeline on the promises of God, but let us not fall into the temptation of the spirit of Felix in this case where we delay when we really should obey. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we consider the scripture and we consider these two chapters and where Paul is at in his life, we see a couple of things, but we see, first of all, this, this fulfillment of promise from some 20 years ago, Lord. So, Father, I pray that we would hold on to your promises without a timeline. Father, may we hold scriptures in an open hand, recognizing that you move mountains, stars, the planets, to bend to your will, and that your timeline and our timeline may not coincide, but as we trust you and we yield our spirit to you, we'll see the very fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. 
Father, would you help us not to delay in our obedience? I believe there's places and spaces in our life that you are acting us to obey you in. Maybe there's a space in our finances and you're simply saying you should, you should give in this area or you should commit this in your finances. Maybe there's a relationship and you are being prompted by the Holy Spirit to offer forgiveness, to offer reconciliation, and for whatever reason, you're delaying. It's not that you don't want to obey, you're just not ready yet, and so you're delaying the obedience. Father, would you please help us destroy that way of thinking? In whatever way you're speaking to us in this moment, would you help us to reflect and respond? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.